Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati. And ha, 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 ha. Amazing. That was great. <laughs> I wish you guys could see her face because that was perfect. Mainly because I was making direct eye contact with Andrea the whole time. But this is our episode on horror comedies. Clearly. Yeah, from that laugh. How would you not know that? <laughs> I I think this has kind of been an episode in the making for a long time. I have to say I was really grateful for this episode to do it right now because, yeah. oh, talking about horror films, guys, it's, it's always death and things in pain and the world is crumbling around you. And mm-hmm. both of these films that we're going to talk about today are actually quite, not only are they lighthearted in many ways, they're actually quite sweet. In a lot of ways. And so it was it was a bit more, it was a lot easier to do this episode than uh, several we've done. Yes, yes, I agree with that. Times are tough and horror is often my escape from the tough times because you see different tough times. But it's also nice to see nice times. And I think horror comedy is, is so interesting because it's so hard to get right. And comedy has a lot in common with horror. And I think that's why sometimes it's really hard to mesh the two genres. You know, there's a lot of writing out there and a lot of film criticism out there about both genres. And they talk a lot about how these are really the two genres that these two genres plus porn, um, who elicit a physical response. Hmm. So if you're watching a really good horror film that really scares you or a really good comedy film that makes you laugh, there's an involuntary physical reflex. You're either screaming, hiding your eyes, or you're laughing out loud. Right. Same with porn. I have been thinking about this since we put out the July-August edition of Rue Morgue, and we were talking about the Halloween remake, and we've got interview material with Danny McBride. You might know that Danny McBride is co-writing the new Halloween, and yes, that is the same Danny McBride from Vice Principals, uh, Pineapple Express, so on and so forth, and Mike Alien Ingle. Covenant? Oh, yeah. See, I was doing him a solid and just leaving that off his resume. To some people, that movie is a solid. Okay, well... To those of you, there it is. But uh, when he's speaking about the Halloween remake, he addresses the fact that people are going to be like, what's this comedy guy doing in horror? And why somebody would ask that after Jordan Peele made Get Out is kind of hilarious. But um, but Danny McBride spoke about it, about making an effective and still funny horror movie because laughs and screams are very much kissing cousins. It has to do with timing. It has to do with pace. It has to do with building expectations and then subverting them in a certain way. So I'm trying to think. We've talked about horror comedy a bit. I guess when we did Evil Dead, maybe Mm -hmm. we talked about that. Yeah, but there are a lot of other horror comedies out there. I mean, the two films we're going to talk about today, Young Frankenstein and What We Do in the Shadows, are decades apart in terms of their release. And and Young Frankenstein was released in 1974. But before that, you have um, the Abbott and Costello films. Mm -hmm. There's a whole lineage of films that kind of came before it that kind of slowly set some of the foundational work in place for these films. So that's not to ignore them, but it is to kind of show that there are so many different avenues in Again, in between these two films, uh, one of the ones that we were also talking about doing, and maybe we'll get to it one day, is Shaun of the Dead. Right. Um, which is another terrific horror comedy. I mean, um, Army of Darkness is another really excellent show of it. There's also a lot of horror comedy in something like Drag Me to Hell. 
Mm-hmm. And I was doing a bit of reading last night in prep for the episode, and a film critic who I really like, John Kenneth Muir, uh, was distinguishing between comedy horror and horror comedy. Oh. So comedy horror would be a comedic film that has horror elements in it, and a comedy horror would be a comedic film which has horror elements in it. So one, there's a kind of different basis for each one. And you know what? Frankly, I, I think both the films we're going to talk about today are comedy horror films. I think so, too. I think so, too. And I think that definition is really interesting because we often talk about these films and how they are marketed and how the marketing push and the poster design and the trailers like are so, so important to films and how they're received and who gets to see them and how they're rated and stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I think I agree. I'm trying to think of what we do in the shadows and there's blood, but it's so slapstick. Yeah, it's very silly. I don't remember what it was rated. Do you? No, I'd imagine like a 14A if oh. we're talking Canadian ratings. <laughs> um, or what, what would that be, like a PG-13 in the States? I don't fucking know. Something like that. And then on top of that, these two films, they kind of, I think they're both definitely parodies of genre, um, two very specific types of subgenres within the horror film. So parody, just for our reference and for our purposes here today, is a composition or a text that mimics another text for humorous intent by applying outlandish or inappropriate elements to it. Now, I actually had to go and look for both of these definitions. So, uh, <laughs> and it's okay, this, I did the same. Yeah, and the satire one, it stumped me. It really stumped me because I thought so clearly that these films are both satires. But in working in relation to them um, with the definition of satire that I'm about to tell you, I wasn't sure. And, and now I kind of come to, I, I think they are. I think they are both satires. So, again, for our purposes here, satire strives to do more than to entertain. It tries to improve humanity by being critical of problematic elements, ridiculing them. Okay. So if you think of something like um, The Great Dictator by Charlie Chaplin, and that was used to mock Hitler as he ascended to power. Mm-hmm. So there was a really deep political connotation to that, which I think is actually very impressive. I think a film like Scary Movie, uh, whether you find it funny or not, actually has a lot of those elements in it because it's such a big critique of the whitewashing of contemporary American films. And uh, it's, I think it's actually quite an important film. So I like to, and I think we'll get into it in this episode. We'll talk about how we might view both of these films as satire. That's really interesting. I First of all, I love Scary Movie. I don't think it gets nearly enough credit in the horror world, and I do think that there is an element of racism to that, and I'm desperate to give it a good chunk of the magazine and really oh, blast well, it wide open. You can open. check out my chapter on it, my new book. So in my research, I was able to come up with like three main types of horror comedy, which is to say black comedy, which makes light of taboo subject matter, parody, Uh, And the definition I have for parody is taking established work and exaggerating it to the point of humor. And spoof, which is taking conventions of a genre and poking fun at that. So so I had pegged Young Frankenstein as a parody of Frankenstein because it kind of – it sticks to that text. Whereas what we do in the shadows is kind of taking on – I don't know if you want to call vampire films a genre. Totally. If you do, then it does, because it's borrowing from all different eras and areas and mythologies within. But yeah, satire is the more interesting facet. It's the faculty of horror nugget, isn't it? I'd say so. And 
I was also reading a lot of um, film criticism just about comedy films in general. And a lot of film critics and people, you know, who write not just about individual films, but as a movement overall, a lot of people are writing about how comedy films are seemingly impenetrable Mm -hmm. to most day-to-day film critics. And and they're kind of meant to be. They're meant to be funny. They are meant to be lighthearted. You're not meant to find um, necessarily deep philosophical meaning in them. But I I frankly think that's a bit lazy. And and some of the, you know, maybe bigger thinkers, let's say, like uh, Thomas Hobbes, who was a philosopher, also the namesake of Hobbes and Calvin and Hobbes, he thought comedy, that at the heart of it, it was the notion of superiority, and how to take that apart, mm. the kind of airs we put on. And that was at the heart of all of comedy. Okay. Um, and then Noel Carroll, who's done a lot of work, especially in genre film, sees comedy as a bringing together of images that are contrary ideas, but they do have some resemblance to a principal idea. Mm-hmm. So you're working in opposites under a kind of dome of one major idea. Mm-hmm. And I like the notion of opposition, and I think we'll see that in both of these films. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I, I struggle with uh, with comedy because I find it very, very uh, reactionary and patriarchal and more often than not racist. And mm-hmm. the very basis of humor is to kind of take the sacred and profane, so to speak, the benign violation theory. I find that there's a lot of ideology, there's a lot of patriarchy in comedies, and I cannot stand it. And there's a lot of comedy I don't like. I'm trying to think of an example of what I do. Yeah, what's your... Do you have a favorite comedy? You know, I love... I like satire a lot. I don't give South Park enough of my time. It's been on for years and years and seasons and seasons, and I love it, and I just haven't seen it. I haven't caught up to it. Another black comedy show that I really loved that's uh, that's British is called The League of Gentlemen. Not to be confused with the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. It's this weird black comedy. It's almost kind of a, if you're familiar with Kids in the Hall, like all the characters are played by a a small group of guys and it's hideous and amazing and I love it. What's your favorite comedy? Um, I have a lot of love for uh, films like Spinal Tap, where this mm. is Spinal Tap. Okay. Um, I love Clue. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of sitcoms, um, I like the kind-hearted ones. Yeah. I love The Office. I love Parks and Rec. You turned me on to Parks and Rec, and it changed my life. I know. You're such a Leslie. Yeah, anyone who's listening to this, please just watch that show. If, if you think that you're on the Faculty of Horror wavelength, you aren't, unless you watch that show, I'm sorry to say. And I grew up with a lot of British humor, so I really love dry humor. There's a couple great BBC series, um, which I think are both on. One of them is definitely on Canadian Netflix, and one is called 2012, about the group of people trying to put on the 2012 Olympics in London. Okay. And what a clusterfuck of bureaucracy it is. Oh. And then they take I can see a, why you'd like that. Yeah, right? And they take a couple of the characters and then make a new series um, based on the same principle, but they're all working at the BBC. So there's even more bureaucracy within a publicly funded broadcaster, so... All rings so true. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, those are our kind of tastes with this. But again, it's, you know, they, they vary, they change. I have great fondness for both these films in a mm-hmm. very different way. Completely. And I'm eager to get into it. So shall we? Let's do it. Let's track back to 1974. I was merely a twinkle in my parents' eye. Oh, my parents hadn't even met. Oh, that's hot. <laughs> it was 11 years before I was born. Academy Award nominee for Best Adapted Screenplay for Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder. This is 1974's Young Frankenstein. 
It's coming from the deep, dark recesses of the mind of Mel Brooks. I love him. Young Frankenstein. of Victor Frankenstein, Frederick Frankenstein, or Frankenstein, as he likes to be known, is notified that he has inherited his family's estate in Transylvania. Frederick leaves behind his fiancée Elizabeth to travel to Europe to see exactly what was left to him. He is met at the train station by Igor, or Igor, as he is known, and his new assistant, the beautiful Inga. Upon his arrival at the estate, he is greeted by the severe Frau Blackner. <laughs> yeah who manages the property. That night, Frederick discovers his grandfather's journals and decides to attempt the reanimation experiment once more. After a mix-up with the brain meant to be used in the body of the new monster, Frankenstein's monster is brought back to life, but with less brain power than expected. The townspeople are uneasy with another Frankenstein in their midst, and their fears are affirmed when Frau Buckner lets the, mo <laughs> lets the monster free. Frederick, in an attempt to prove the validity of his experiment, performs putting on the Ritz alongside the monster. A stage light explodes, and the monster loses control with the townspeople chasing him. Victor decides to give the monster some of his intellect in order to tame him, which ultimately works. The film ends with Victor and Inga married happily. The monster and Elizabeth are also settling into a new, if boring, married life. Also, there's a weird rapey scene in it. Yes, indeed. Let's just get that yeah, out of the let's way. let's talk about that. How fucking astonished I was. And Gene Wilder has motherfucking done this to me before. I am a fan. Uh, I, I still call myself a fan, even though recent years have necessitated a great reappraisal of his work, of the sexism, of the chauvinism, of the homophobia that's in his work. I used to love this film called The World's Greatest Lover. Right. Do you know that one? I've heard of it. I've not seen it. I loved it when I was a kid. And then I found it on like Amazon on DVD and I bought it and I was so excited to laugh my ass off and I couldn't muster. I, I could barely crack a grin. It was so offensive. And I was like, shit, I love him. He's so over the top. He sells everything at 110%. There is no one like him. Mm -hmm. um, and so I still really uh, respect his work and respect his craft. But whew, even this was hard to go back to for the problematic moments. And it's strange because the scene kind of which we're referencing takes place towards the end of the film when the monster escapes with Elizabeth, who's played by the amazing, incomparable Madeline Kahn. She's awesome. Oh, in she's film. insane. Like, if you love her in this and haven't seen Clue, please go see Clue. Yes. And it kind of happens. And on the rewatch, I, I hadn't seen this film in years. And I was like, 
oh, I, I don't remember this. And then it's all kind of okay because she likes it because of his big woof. Now, it's, again, this is part of what we're doing right now. I think this is part of us as a culture. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably doing this for yourself, is going back to the things you loved and reappraising them, mm-hmm. giving them a new assessment. And so while I find that scene problematic, am I willing to throw out this entire film? No. And I think that is a fair assessment. You may disagree with that, and that's okay. Now, I think part of the reassessing of it is understanding why that's not okay. And in doing so, you you have to kind of make amends with yourself, and you have to make amends with the part of yourself that maybe when you watched all the time as a kid, you thought was really funny. Yeah. And I thought it was really funny because I didn't understand what that was, but I knew I'd been laughing the whole film. And it's problematic because it's implied rape, and then it's implied that she likes it. Yeah. That's, for me, where the problematic elements lie. Right. And that gag comes in again at the end, mm-hmm. at the very end. Like, that's the note that yeah. this film ends on, sadly. And it's uh, it's a shame. Yes. But like you said, I, I, I'm never going to say it's okay because it's a product of the times, but it is what it is because it's a product of the times. And I saw this film the first time as a kid, sort of. Uh, rewatching it last week, I was like, I don't think I ever sat down and watched this beginning to end. Like, I know scenes, I remember moments, and it was rewatching last week that I remembered why. It's because it's motherfucking long. Yeah. It's a long <laughs> slog, and it kind of... Uh, Kind of slumps a little ways through. It does. I think all the scenes work individually, mm. but there are some real standouts in them. And I think that's where the film kind of lives. Mm-hmm. That's where mm-hmm. it lives its best self, so to speak. It's true in those um, moments. Yeah. And, and I think that there was a lot more they could have cut or trimmed from it. Mm-hmm. But I think also they were really trying to be respectful and loving towards Mary Shelley's original work and James Whale's original films, uh, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, and and even a bit Son of Frankenstein, which uh, James Whale did not do, I don't believe. So there's a lot of respect there. And I think when you talk about parody, there's not necessarily a lot of parody that pulls from one specific genre without bringing other things in. So I'm thinking of like, just to reference back to Scary Movie, because I've been thinking about it recently, there's a random Matrix reference in it. I don't know why that Matrix reference lives in there other than it was popular at the time and Mm. it was a funny reference that the audience would get. But there you go. It was in there. Whereas this feels like a very pure parody. It is purely a parody of Mm. the Frankenstein films to the point when uh, they were originally going to make this film with Columbia, uh, Mel Brooks pulled out of the deal because they were going to try and trick him to shooting on colored film. Mm. And he so firmly believed, along with Gene Wilder, that this film should be black and white. Yes. If you're going to do it, pay homage to the original thing and give it its full breadth. Now, I have that this film was inducted into the National Film Preservation Board. And I remember when I was writing my thesis on Night of the Living Dead and I found out that Night of the Living Dead had been inducted, I was like, this is significant. This is a big deal. But now I look at that list and I'm like, oh, it did well in the box office, so mm-hmm. to speak. I mean... All this to say that Young Frankenstein is acknowledged as being culturally significant, which I think is a significant thing for a parody film. And I I think that just points to the fact that it's taking a very classic text, a very classic canonical film, and still offers something new to audiences to appreciate. And I think where it kind of lies in its success is that it really is so 
lovingly making fun of the Universal films Mm -hmm. to the point where they actually bring in multiple set pieces from the original film that they were able to get and utilize them within the film. So you've got a really similar feel to it. Mm -hmm. I saw that credit in the opening. And it's awesome. Like, that's so special and really unique. And we don't always get that passion for the original subject. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel like Igor really steals the goddamn show. Yeah, uh, his comedic timing, oh. his faces, his breaking of the fourth wall—he steals the show. And you know uh, the Aerosmith song "Walk This Way," partially inspired by his line "Walk This Way." Is that right? Mm-hmm. Apparently, Steven Tyler finds that to be hilarious. Well, there's a little factoid. If you win Jeopardy on that, you owe us money. So, Young Frankenstein was a blockbuster smash, like a huge, huge hit upon its release. And as a result, it's gotten the critical scrutiny that it deserves. And I think ultimately this film is truly about identity and DNA. The family we are and the family we have versus the family we choose and make. And I think that's something that as you're ascending into adulthood you become more and more familiar with. So Frederick, as he's starting out in the film, he's so against the Frankenstein name to the point where he's calling himself Frankenstein. He's got this uppity fiance. He's wound tighter than anything, as you can see in the scene where he's teaching the class and he inadvertently stabs himself, which is so, again, beautifully played by Gene Wilder. I don't really know that many other people who could have pulled that off. And then it takes a kind of return to the homestead. It's a return to the repressed, as our fellow critic Robin Wood might say, and is, again, a very popular theory in horror films. So when Frederick goes back to Transylvania after he encounters Igor, the, again, grandson of Igor, the beautiful Inga, uh, Frau Bluckner, after he encounters all of these people, he starts to kind of feel at home in the place to the point where he can even follow the music. He finds out where his grandfather's secret lair was, and he uncovers the notebooks, and he begins to feel something. Mm -hmm. And he begins to feel impassioned in a way that the uptightness that we saw in the classroom scene was not present. Mm -hmm. That didn't exist. And now you've got a whole new character, one who is impassioned, one who sees the potential. And I think when you look at Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and any kind of other, you know, filmic iteration, you know, the other ones we've talked about, James Will as well as Kenneth Branagh's, there is such um, a hyperbole to them. There's a masculine hyperbole to them. The notion of creator, uh, the notion of giving life as a male, it mm-hmm. feels so prominent within those films. And what I love about this is the kind of, in Young Frankenstein, there's such a joyousness to it. Mm-hmm. There is such a silliness to it. And I feel like it feels much more genuine than this kind of overwrought, like, it's alive mm-hmm. to the, you know, what we get in Young Frankenstein, mm-hmm. which actually feels much more authentic and much more true to life, which I think is where a lot of the humor comes from. Because when we watch films, when we read books, when we participate in media, so much of it is this kind of austere, revered, way of life. Mm-hmm. And when comedy presents you with the realities of life, with the silliness of life, it is so refreshing. It is so charming. Mm-hmm. And it is so humanizing because mm-hmm. I think everyone has felt over exuberant and then silly and then overwrought. And yeah, I think these are a lot of lovely themes which come through in this film. 
It's true. And I was thinking about how in the original Frankenstein, we did an episode on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and it was this guy who had such a lust to realize his intellectual capacity by creating life that he hadn't considered the moral implications. It was all about him and what he wanted, and he hadn't really considered the rest of it. Whereas when it comes to Frederick, I feel like he starts with the point of, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. I don't want to do that. It's fucked up that my grandfather did that. And then he kind of came over to, I can, ergo, I should. So I I thought that was a really, as an inversion, as such a direct inversion, it was played well. It was authentic. It was believable. You could go along with that inversion. And I think there's something to say about the notion of the partners within this film, particularly between Elizabeth and Inga. Yes. Um, you really only get one major scene with Elizabeth before he goes off to Transylvania, and it's a... I fucking love that scene. I love that scene. And I don't know, I'm not that familiar with, like, early 70s, like, comedy drama thing, mm-hmm. but when I'm dressed up, I'm like, how do people do things when I'm all dressed up? My nails are done. My hair looks nice. I'm wearing, I don't know, fucking taffeta or whatever she was yeah. wearing. <laughs> And it's such a great moment, and it can be very silly, and it seems like she's very highfalutin, but I think as Andrea just said, and as I very much relate to as well, when it's all done, you're like, don't fucking touch it, because the patriarchy has forced me to adhere to this. Yeah. And God knows there are a 100,000 dramatic films where, you know, uh, a woman falls into a puddle and emerges with her makeup absolutely perfect. Like, it's so refreshing to see the ugly underbelly of that and to laugh at it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, versus a character like Inga, who is very kind of purely beautiful and innocent and just wants to help Victor. And I I think that all kind of plays into the notion of the supportive crew around Frederick. Mm -hmm. And when that all comes alive, he is suddenly able to iterate and create and get excited and impassioned. He is no longer tied to this kind of seemingly North American way of life. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this seems to be roughly set maybe in the 30s, 1930s, I would say. Mm-hmm. And then he transplants over to the old world, which is an interesting kind of inversion because Mary Shelley's Frankenstein does not take place in Transylvania. That is a kind of comes down from the Bram Stoker and the this and the that and the other universal films. So when he travels back there, it's not only an immediate code for the audience to say, ooh, it's a spooky place, but it's, ooh, it's a spooky old place. Mm -hmm. It is a place that time forgot. And I like that it used that because it creates such a shorthand. And again, it's something we've talked about on this podcast before, the difference between new world and old world. Mm -hmm. And I think what to me becomes very clear is that ultimately – all of these characters, from what we can see, feel more comfortable in the old world. Yes. They lose the airs that they have at the beginning of the film and become more fully themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about you with uh, Inga's first scene when she goes, roll, roll, roll in the hay. Yeah, it's because I can't roll my Come goddamn on, just try it. Roll. Just checking. So I think it's important to talk about... Oh, gosh, I'm just going to say it, probably the most iconic scene in this film, which is the theatrical presentation of the monster, mm. where Frederick and the monster perform putting on the Ritz. Mm-hmm. It's still one of those moments where I, I used to laugh a lot harder at this film when I was a kid, mm-hmm. but it, this scene still in particular cracks me up. <laughs> Does it? It's so perfect because... Again, it's that, you know, when we were talking about Noel Carroll and Thomas Hobbes, it's it's the juxtaposition that we're playing with. You have Gene Wilder 
pulling off this total song and dance man thing, looking very dashing, you know, going around the stage doing his thing, and then you have the monster. Mm-hmm. And it just fucking cracks me up. Yeah. Because, again, it's that inversion of aristocracy, and you can see the audience buying into it. You can see this upper-class, bougie audience going like, oh, oh well, if, if the monster can mutter and putting on the Ritz, then then surely he can't be that bad. Yeah, yeah. He's and, in a suit. He looks good. And, of course, you know, um, uh, Putting on the Ritz was written by Irving Berlin in 1927, and it's about, you know, it's, it's a saying for getting dressed up, what you would put on to go to the Ritz. Right. And it's, it's putting on airs. It's putting on airs, and it immediately strips away the the inclusion of this song, the inclusion of this moment, this scene. It's a ripping away of all of the things that people are meant to be. And I think when you look at the monster in this film, it's a socialization of what we do to ourselves. We socialize and we socialize and we do all these things to get to a place where it's like, Andrea, if you or I wanted to, we could put on the nicest things in our closet and go to the fucking Ritz and be totally fine. And I like that it kind of plays with that socialization and the discrepancies in it. And so the fact that the monster isn't nearly as articulate as Frederick is, but the audience is still so impressed that he can even do it or attempt. Mm-hmm. Another thing about Young Frankenstein, and this film was actually a product of Gene Wilder's brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story I've heard um, based on Mel Brooks's recounting because um, Gene Wilder passed away a couple years ago was that they were working on the film Blazing Saddles, which also came out in 1974. And uh, Gene Wilder was in a corner writing away one day and Mel Brooks saw what he was writing and it was this kind of rough, rough plot outline for Young Frankenstein. And Mel Brooks got interested. They started collaborating on it, and it became one of the best things they've ever worked on, according to Brooks himself. Yeah, he said that in retrospect. And they were clearly very fond of each other to mm-hmm. the point where um, the only thing apparently they really clashed on was the inclusion of putting on the Ritz as what they do in the show of the monster. And Gene Wilder desperately wanted it, and Mel Brooks said, no, it's not going to work. And basically... Gene Wilder behaved a little bit like a toddler and stamped and pleaded and cried. Mm-hmm. And Mel Brooks gave in and then said he was absolutely right. No kidding. It's brilliant. I love it. I'm so happy it's there. Huh. And one of the things I like overall in this film, and, and it's interesting because researching this film, it's clear that there's so much affection for this film. And there was so, so much affection making it. And so many people talk about how much fun it was on set. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that Gene Wilder cracked up in almost every take, there was a lot of fun to be had making this film. And I like that it deviates from the original plot, where Victor Frankenstein is unwilling to give up the elements of his life that he really likes. He just wanted the fame, he wanted the glory, he wanted this notoriety, and he wanted to create something. And then when that creation didn't work out, well, fuck that go away. Mm-hmm. And in this one, what we see is Frederick taking responsibility and actually giving part of himself to the monster, mm-hmm. giving him the intellect so he can at least exist and he doesn't have to be chased around by townspeople all the time. I think a lot of the criticism and a lot of the analysis on this film deals with that scene where Victor transplants his intellect. But I also think it's actually quite sweet in the scene with the blind man, uh, an amazing cameo uh-huh. by Gene Hackman. Oh my God! It is Gene Hackman. Is you didn't it? know that? No. That's well, fucking Gene Hackman. Sure is. Apparently, he was tennis partners with Gene Wilder and asked 
uh, if he was working on anything and could he be a part of it because he wanted to get try comedy. That's amazing. Because he was primarily known as a um, uh, dramatic actor at the well, time. Still is in my eyes. That's why I'm so astonished. That was great. Yeah. Huh. And it's it's a wonderful scene. And it's so funny because they're both, both the monster and the blind man are so accommodating to each other. <laughs> and yet. And it's this weird, like, how we socialize each other of, like, even when someone does, like, the wrong thing or the stupid thing and you just kind of, like, bite your lip. You and just you, cover it up. And you them. cover it up. Yeah. Is there any sociology on that? Uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm in one of those moments right now. <laughs> Let me just consult my sociolodex. But I think for all of these moments that we're mentioning in the film, and I do want to kind of trace it back to what we're mentioning, where one of the problems of this film is that it's long and it slogs in some point. But I'm not sure if I feel comfortable removing any moment except the problematic moment we mentioned at the beginning out of it. Right. Well, even that, I mean, you were talking about the tweaks it made to the original. I kind of like that Elizabeth and the monster get a really happy ending. I feel like Elizabeth had all this artifice that we were talking about before, and she kind of had all that stripped away, and she kind of embraced being a monster, which is kind of badass. Mm -hmm. You know, I think if they made young Frankenstein today, she'd be like my queen or something, (laughs) removing that problematic element. But yeah, like... um, It's almost like they take every single scene and then they embellish it and they embellish it and they embellish it. And so it winds up lengthening every single scene because it's pretty much scene for scene of the original film. So, so yeah, I can see what you're saying. But, but yeah, at the same time to sit down and watch it in one sitting, it's kind of meant to be enjoyed piecemeal. And I think, you know, when we look at the character of, We'll use Victor Frankenstein right now. So the past two times we've talked about Victor Frankenstein in this podcast have been iterations of Bride of Frankenstein Mm -hmm. and Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Right. And both of those portrayals feel so divorced from any man I know in real life, (laughs) whereas Frederick Frankenstein feels like a lot of men I know, mm-hmm. um, charming, silly, self-effacing, brave, but also foolhardy. Hapless. Hapless, but adorable and charming and, and all the wonderful things that men can be, because mm-hmm. I hear they can be those things. I've heard. And I, I like that where we find in comedy, there is a good portrayal of masculinity. Yeah. And there's a sensitive one and there's a funny one and it's... It feels more honest and more true. Uh-huh. And I really like that about this right. film. And even the monster. Like, the monster is also this kind of hapless, sweet guy who's just trying, and he doesn't know what the fuck is going on. Yeah. And same with Igor and all of that. Everyone has good intentions. Even the female characters, as reduced to the sex pot and the ice queen and the... I don't want to say the name because I'm the one who does the sound. Who's going to do the horse sound if I say your name? Oh, and Frau Blockner? <laughs> as archetypal as they are and as reductive as they can be, they're, I, I never feel that they're fully exploited or anything. They're, they're never really reduced. They're not unimportant. They're not inconsequential. No, because they understand what they're making fun of. Uh-huh. And when you understand that, I think that's where the power of comedy comes in. That's it. Um, when you take apart the social structures that we live within and you point a finger at them and shine a light and show how they are silly and reductive and stupid that's where i think the power of comedy comes from and there's the satire boom done nailed it 
See you next month. <laughs> so moving along, we're going to fast forward, what, 50 years? I'm trying to do this math. 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 40 years. 40 years? We're going to fast forward several decades. <laughs> yes. To a movie that was written, directed by, and starring Jemaine Clement and Taika Waititi, What We Do in the Shadows from 2014. It's been like this the whole time. Deacon on dishes and it still hasn't moved in five years. You're a cool guy, but you're not pulling your weight in the flat. Oh, I'm glad to hear that I'm cool. No, that's not the point, though. Yeah, yeah missing no, I know. Not that I know. Flat meeting about how cool you are. When you get three vampires in a flat, obviously there's going to be a lot of tension. Viago was an 18th century dandy. A ghost cat. Vladislav is a bit of a pervert. This is my torture chamber. Deacon's like the young bad boy of the group. I'm supposed to pay rent, but I don't. The trouble with being a vampire is you have to be invited in. Come into the bar, please. Will you invite us in? We need some fresh blood. Hi, my name is Nick. I've been a vampire for two months. My friend Rich is a bouncer. He'll invite us in. Gentlemen, you are most welcome. <laughs> Nick is so much fun. I'm a vampire. Vampire! Vampire! Such a dick. Nick, oh. why don't you use the front door? Do you want to draw attention to this house, hmm? You've got a whole documentary crew following you around. You let a vampire hunter into our I don't house. Wait a minute, I just got my email. I'm dead! I'm gonna kill you! I'm already dead! You will not eat the camera guy, maybe one camera guy. Here's your legs. Wow! Ah, the f*** did he do? Hey, that was... Don't swear, what are we? Werewolves, not swirls. When you're a vampire, you become very sexy. Ow! Shot in a mockumentary reality TV format, What We Do in the Shadows follows a household of four vampires who are flatmates. Peter, Viago, Deacon, and Vlad were all turned in different eras and have to contend with the usual roommate problems, like chores, with specific vampire concerns. Over the course of the film, we see the group going out, stalking prey, beefing with the local werewolves, and trying to keep their flat in order. Viego and Vlad grapple with their lost loves, and Deacon struggles to deal with Nick, a new vampire that Peter turned, who's having trouble adjusting to his new lifestyle. After lifestyle? I like that. I can make jokes, because we're doing comedies. But I'm ch- after much hilarity and misadventure, including the death of Peter, making a human friend in stew, and reconciling with the werewolves, the group settles into a new normal. So returning to our typology of the different types of comedy, where does this one land for you? So I think this one is satire. And for me, again, going back to my definition of satire from early in the episode, I find this film such a funny 
critique of modern male masculinity. Mm -hmm. And I find it does it through the different iterations of vampires. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and and the the filmmakers have said this themselves. So, uh, Viago uh, represents the kind of interview with a vampire vampire, the Anne Rice uh, romantic. Um, Vlad represents, of course, Vlad the Impaler, mainly kind of cribbed off of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. And Mm -hmm. I mean that in the Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, Deacon was styled on the Universal Dracula. It was styled on Nosferatu, super obviously. Mm-hmm. And Nick is very much a kind of new millennia Twilight vampire. Right. And I, I think, you know, through all of those different avenues, you've got different perspectives into masculinity. And I think you see a lot of performative masculinity in this film uh, through a lot of different ways mm-hmm. and in the day-to-dayness of it. Um, you know, there are a lot of interviews with Jemaine uh, Clement and Tega Watiti where they talk about how this film, they kind of feel like, is comprised of all of the cutscenes of a film, like Interview with the Vampire or Bram Stoker's Dracula or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So all the moments where they're just kind of like sitting around waiting for something to happen. It's not the great narrative. It's the moments in between. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you think about the people you know and the people who you know really well, you know, your impressions of them aren't necessarily made up of their best or worst moments. It's the moments in between. It's the banality. It's the knowing them. It's the commonality. Right. And it points to the nature by which masculinity has changed because we've got Viego who looks like a very kind of a dandy type thing. Like Interview with a Vampire is very homoerotic, but at the same time, these are badass killers. You know, they're not they're not kind of like labeled with a derogatory femininity. Um, and yet when they're placed in the modern context, it's just like these vampires shouldn't have to do menial chores. They shouldn't have to wait in line to get into clubs and stuff like that. So the fact that we're seeing that side of it is just so delicious. And I think this film is really indebted to what Anne Rice did to the vampire genre, uh, the romanticizing of the vampire, um, the vampire's tragic figure and also antagonist, the kind of complicated relationship that vampires have with the narratives within her work, as well as Stephanie Myers, who wrote The Twilight Saga, which when I saw one of those films in theaters, I thought I was going to see a comedy, but I was very quickly shushed by the people who I went to see it with. But as in you found it funny and they didn't exactly. Um, <laughs> oh, I was I was very much not welcome there. But I, I think you know this evolution that you're talking about is you know taking it from this dark dramatic figure into something much more tangible and real mm-hmm. and much and, more and relatable. Many eras of that dark dramatic figure, like like you said, there's the Nosferatu slash Count Orlok style jam pitted in contrast with the other vampires who are maybe a little bit more engaging. Peter's a bit of an ancient, inaccessible being who lives in the basement until he is destroyed and then we're all kind of mourning him like, like we really loved that guy. And again, this film like really pokes holes in the notions of the upper class. And I think a lot of vampires, particularly, again, post-Anne Rice, they're very much seen as aristocratic. And here you have them all in a flatting situation, which is, again, a New Zealand term. And you don't have a lot of aristocracy who has to live together. Mm -hmm. So seeing those competing vantage points Mm -hmm. is really strange. And I think the notion of having roommates is very much a contemporary 
idea. Right. And it's an idea that, you know, you can be young and unpartnered and live with people to supplement your uh, living costs. That's right. It's an economic imperative exactly. to living in the city. It's an urbanized situation. Exactly. And it's, you know, I, and I think you and I are both now living with our partners and we don't have roommates. But now looking back, I have very fond memories of roommates. But there were definitely so many similar conversations had to the ones in this film. Oh, yes. The Wheel of Chores? We didn't even have a Wheel of Chores. We just had passive aggressiveness. Oh, okay. Just post-it notes? Uh-huh. Just like a whiteboard on the fridge? Something slipped under your door. <laughs> Ooh. So vampires are, we've talked about vampires before in the podcast numerous times, but they're such uniquely malleable monsters, and they have so many rules and tropes. And one of the things I love about what we do in the shadows is that it establishes its rules pretty early on. It's decided which of the rules it's going to play by and which it's not, and that is to say that not all vampires fly or transform into animals, but this film establishes that early on, and then it just plays in those rules, in those boundaries that it sets. Um, and I think it's a really, it's a love letter to fans who who see a lot of kind of fantasy fulfillment in superfans who might have wondered how vampires get by behind closed doors. And you can see, I like that in this film, you see that the vampires are fans of the culture themselves. Yeah. Like that they reference the Lost Boys. They're playing boys. it up. Yeah. <laughs> we stole that idea from the Lost Boys, but I put a nice twist on it. Nick, how does it feel to have a snake for a penis? Even just how to put together an impeccable outfit without a reflection, that had me in stitches. How to keep up with modern fashion and music and technology, etc. And it's so charming. That is the thing. It's, it's, it's a mixture of dry humor and charm. And it, again, it's playing on all these themes which are so present in vampire lore. I mean, I always think of Bram Stoker's Dracula, to film adaptations as well as the novel, mm-hmm. having to do a lot with technology and technological concerns in the Victorian era. Mm-hmm. And here you just see that played out, but with contemporary modern technology, learning about the internet, you can poke someone and you've got, you know, Vlad the poker. And um, there are all these really delicious parallels Mm -hmm. and it feels really satisfying and it feels satisfying as a fan of the genre but I also don't think it's exclusionary I think someone could come in uh, with not a lot of knowledge about vampires and vampire lore and you know our kind of cultural mythology of them and still enjoy the film because it is relatable Mm -hmm. Um, and that's you know this is why this is one of those films that when people who um, know what I do and want recommendations but oh no I don't like horror movies I almost always recommend this one. Okay. And because it's fun, it's sweet, it's really entertaining. Yeah, and I think I think most people who aren't horror fans have some have some understanding of what vampire mythology is and even if they're not familiar even if they're not able to identify the individual inspirations behind each character, they can kind of see the seeds. Mm-hmm. It's so ubiquitous. Vampire mm-hmm. folklore is so ubiquitous. The biggest difference between this and Jan Frankenstein, insofar as it's not parodying one particular text, it's kind of tackling a whole body of work, in and of itself, it's got this mockumentary format, which is poking fun at the way those shows are made, and it's that part is just done so well. It really captures uh, the things that reality shows emphasize, how stiff and wooden the subjects can be when they're on the spot, because they're not TV stars. They're like, well, this is my home, and this <laughs> is 
where we do this because we're vampire. I don't fucking know, you know, like where they're trying to act natural, etc. And I feel like the the film really captures unnatural beings trying to act natural to the nth degree, like not even just to convince their guests that they're not vampires, but we're okay, we're cool, we're with it. And I love that. I think this film is very much indebted to reality television. I almost knew I would love this movie from the second it started because it opens with this fake logo, uh, this old-timey logo from the New Zealand documentary board, which, for anyone who doesn't know, is a completely fake entity Mm. made for this film. Okay. Um, And if you look it up online, the only other credits are the new TV series coming out based on this film. Oh, yeah. And uh, which, yeah, Wellington Paranormal, I think it's called. Okay. Um, And then I know there's still talk of a sequel called What We Do in the Moonlight about the werewolves or swearwolves. Okay. Um, And I like that it has that because it's such, it it just, it's mind-boggling. And again, we are from Canada. We're based in Toronto. And Canada, as we've talked a lot about in our player episodes on Pontypool and Shivers, um, our film culture here is so reliant and so based in government funding mm-hmm. that to see that and to see New Zealand, which is essentially another colony or was, um, it, it feels so familiar and it's so, it's such a particular type of film. It is again that weird formality we're talking about. It's not necessarily sensational, but it's like, we are trying to make an educational film about these people in our country and this is what it is and here is how it's educational. Also, here are some learning materials about it. It just, yeah. it's this whole kind of subsect of film, which I find absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was so cleverly done because even the most, uh, sensational bits are some of the ones that are played for the most awkward moments. Mm. Like when Viago attempts to, or does kill the woman that he brings home and he hits an artery and oh she's just spraying God. blood everywhere and he's embarrassed. And yeah. It's just, it's perfect. It's hilarious. Now, as Andrea mentioned, this is very much a mockumentary. And a mockumentary is anything that takes the format of a documentary, but does it staged. Right. And uh, other famous examples of this are, again, a film I've mentioned before uh, earlier in this episode. Uh, this is Spinal Tap, as well as Christopher Guest's work, such as Best in Show, Waiting for Guffman, A Mighty Wind, and there are many others. Mm-hmm. Some people actually place the original mockumentary as Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. Okay. Well, I which I don't know how much I buy that, but okay, that's interesting. It was his radio broadcast where he acted as a newsman who was actually reporting on an alien invasion, which triggered mass panic in parts of the United States. Right, they believed it was real. Yeah, and it was not, and a lot of people apparently missed the the disclaimer at the beginning. (laughs) And, um, And I think what's interesting about that is our relationship to documentaries. We rely on documentaries to tell us the truth. Mm. We rely on them to not impose a narrative construct. But of course they are going to impose a narrative construct. They must. You have to. You wouldn't have anything entertaining or worthwhile, anything like that. I mean, gosh, I'm, I'm sure there's some kind of Reddit form about making a murderer that is still in battle with itself. A hundred percent. And... I watched that series. I enjoyed that series. It got me thinking. It got me angry. But it's it's still, it's not real. It's not all of the facts because nothing will ever portray all of the facts. That's right. And I like that this one does a very kind of narrow view into a very ordinary experience of the extraordinary. Right. 
how would you ever get vampires on film? How would this happen? What are, what are the negotiations in which that happens? Mm-hmm. But the film deals with that, and they, they create a really loving, fun experience. And I think that goes to speak to a lot of what the creators did. Jemaine Clement and Taika Watiti. Of course, Jemaine Clement is probably best well known for uh, his series, Flight of the Concords. Taika Watiti has gone on to do the latest Thor film. Okay. Uh, Thor Ragnarok, mm-hmm. but he also did an incredible film, uh, I believe in between, called Hunt for the Wilder People, mm. which is on Netflix, and it is beautiful and lovely and funny and so sweet. And um, yeah, I think this is something very, very special to the horror genre. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about how, how malleable vampires are, and I thought for this format, it is a mockumentary, but it's also very much a satire of today's reality TV addiction and how desperate audiences are to peel behind the curtain into people's private lives and vices. And this film came out in 2014, and it's it's no less true now. Absolutely not. It's uh, If anything, it's really picked up steam. And as we discussed before in our episode on voyeurs, whether reality is funny or scary or weird, there is a part of us that gets off on seeing that which we're not supposed to see. And what we do in the shadows shows us this silly, unglamorous side of vampire life that's normally hidden from us and and there are things that kind of go along with that. Now, I know you like there's a housewives show that you like. Oh, I like all of the housewives shows and I <laughs> oh like all their spin-offs. Okay. Okay, let's see if I can list them off. Do it. Real Housewives of Orange County, Real Housewives of New Jersey, Real Housewives of New York City, Real Housewives of Potomac, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Potomac? Yep. Shh. That sounds like a condition. There was Real Housewives of Miami that was canceled, Real Housewives of DC that was canceled. Um, shit, I'm probably forgetting some. And then there's the offshoot of uh, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills called Vanderpump Rules, uh, which I've got my partner addicted to. So we get to watch that together. Everything else he's less interested in. Okay. If anyone out there is also a Real Housewives fan, tweet me or whatever, and I will talk to you about it. I have, I have opinions about all of them. Right. And that's Alex. If you're one of those listeners who confuses us, and there's a lot of you, you're just like, Andrea, <laughs> your cats. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Andrea's very allergic to cats. You want Alex. Uh, my my reality TV addiction is like sometimes I get sucked into like Ink Master, mm. something like the competition type thing. Uh, my partner and I got really into one lately called 60 Days In. You were telling me about this. Right. And what was fascinating about that one is it's under the guise of a documentary. It's under the guise of these people are screened very carefully and selected very carefully because they're going to infiltrate the prison system. These fuckers are going to go to jail and act like inmates and they're going to provide the sheriff with insights as to what's wrong with the judicial system. That's all bullshit. That's the documentary side and it's complete BS. These people are there to be tormented, terrified, put in situations of very high risk, and then we all get to watch them shit their pants and laugh at them, basically. So there have been a couple of seasons about it, and it's, it's funny that you mentioned Reddit because there's a very active Reddit uh, about this show, and like there's such unlikable characters, and the Reddit just goes nuts. And it was fascinating to me because I remember it's been a while since I worked in a corporate environment, but when I did, my my sector or whatever all watched The Bachelor and I swear to God, oh, I they can never get into that. They all watched it solely for the purpose of cooler talk. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, you've got uh, 
You've got the 40-something mother of four. You've got the 50-something unmarried guy, manager guy. You've got us young underlings. We've got nothing in common. We've got nothing the fuck to talk about but work. And yet, if we all watch The Bachelor, there's kind of that common ground. And and it's actually quite revealing how you react to these things. Because insofar as reality TV is very contrived situations, there's a lot of genuine human nature happening, even in these extraordinary circumstances. And that is interesting for us to discuss. So yeah, I was looking a bit at reality TV and there's reality TV that's that's very much about empathy. That's about normal-ish people in extraordinary situations and that's shows like Survivor, Big Brother, competition shows like American Idol. You're rooting for these people because you see that yourselves in them. RuPaul's Drag Race? Yeah, I totally see myself in RuPaul's Drag Race all I the time. Do. Then there are shows that offer a peek at these really surreal populations, these really abnormal, like the fabulously wealthy, the real housewives we were mm. talking about, the Kardashians, and then there's the very decrepit, which is the kind of when we all know that we're dealing in the junk food of TV <laughs> when we're watching stuff like Hoarders, Intervention, Jersey Shore, mm -hmm. like we know we're just kind of voyeurs in kind of the dark underbelly of society. But even when it seems like these shows are designed to punish and or humiliate its participants, they're designed that way. And I, I felt shades of that in this film, in that this film was looking to de-glamorize vampires. And what you get is something that is not glamorous, but is still so endearing. And it's that endearment, it's that raw human nature that is strangely intimate and rewarding that, that is what makes this film so strong and what makes its characters so lovable. Mm -hmm. I love the inclusion of Stu <laughs> as a character in this film. The actor who played Stu was actually Stu. Yeah, he's an IT guy. He Which was, makes me think that they literally just pulled Watiti's, him into He was um, roommate at the time. Oh, no way! And he worked in IT and they got him to come on set. I and, knew like, it. He was so perfectly awkward. It was too good. It just... Like, it was so perfect to the point where you could never act that. You could get Daniel Day-Lewis to try to do that, and he would not be able to master no. that kind of strange <laughs> awkwardness. Yeah, yeah. And it's that those moments that I think situate and ground the film in something really real. Yeah. Um, that feels quite lovely and quite exceptional. Yeah. And uh, watching this film, it, it feels safe. I think the popularity of reality TV kind of, as, as gross as it is sometimes, and sometimes I can't get into it, and sometimes I let my, like, it feels like junk food for the brain. Mm -hmm. It feels like brain candy. But oh, yeah. there is there is a functionalist approach within sociology that's looking at reality TV, that reality TV is offering reassurance that celebrities are human with emotions. Reality TV offers escapism into lives we aspire to, and that may or may not include a realization that they're not all they're cracked up to be. And then there's economic factors. Like reality TV has a big impact on the way advertising works nowadays, where product placement is a way more organic form of advertising than outright ads. If Kim Kardashian is going to wear something that has a way greater effect on brand awareness. Mm -hmm. So it, it's really changed the game with regard to media. Not to mention schadenfreude is a thing. Schadenfreude? Shade and Freud. I feel like you're getting further away from it. Really? Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. It's a thing, but I can't pronounce it. Schadenfreude. Do you watch it for Schadenfreude? Um, oh, such a deep question. I do. 
I, I do because my life is consumed by my day job and uh, my second job, which is all my horror stuff. And sometimes, oh, this is going to make me sound like such a gross feminist. I just want to come home and I want I want to watch old rich women yell at each other. Yeah. That's it. That's okay. Yeah. And then I become very invested in them and I follow them on Instagram. And <laughs> No, it's so true. It's so true. Again, it's that need to see behind the curtain. It's the Oz great and powerful. We want to see what happens or what we do in the shadows, so to speak. Mm-hmm. What goes on when we're not looking? And I think it's that comfort of knowing that, you know what, I will go home after this. I will hang out with my partner and then I'm going to watch Real Housewives of New York City, new episode. And that's what another vampire could be doing. That's what someone fantastical, that's what Tom Cruise could be doing. It's that it makes us all more human. Mm. And I think in a world, in a society where we're living in increasingly strange and uncertain times, there's something really comforting about that. That's right. And it's, it's again, it's, it's nice to see um, this notion of the fantastic and the strange and the dark portrayed so morbidly mm-hmm. and so realistically it's it's uh there's so much banality it's again that term banality of evil there is mm-hmm. it's the day-to-day stuff who does the fucking dishes who does the fucking dishes it's such a good question <laughs> my cats won't do them so it's a novel thing that we're witnessing but we're witnessing it through the lens of this reality tv formula that has been established and recycled again and again and again and has proven to be economically powerful psychologically powerful um powerful socially just in the workplace like i described so yeah this this film really is a hit on so many levels and another thing i like because again i hang out I don't know, I'd say predominantly with women. Outside of my partner and a couple of male friends, I I don't know, I just always gravitate towards women, especially the older I get. So there's something very comforting in seeing male interaction that's positive and confused and strange. Um, <laughs> and I like, again, as we were talking about off the top of this section about the kind of different notions of masculinity that uh-huh. they can kind of all work together, then kind of find friendship. I like that they all find friendship through stew. Yeah. Like, there's no reason for them to like this guy. They just like him. Well, I think it has to do with the fact that, like, what? One of them is, like, the youngest among them is over 100 years old. They are sick to fucking death of each other. And so here's this guy who, you know, is is not only a new personality, but he brings with him this internet, Mm -hmm. this whole wide world of pornography and research and fashion and information that they all just kind of really latch onto. It's so funny. And another thing to talk about when you talk about technology in this film is um, the moment when Viago connects with his ex-familiar, who is the guy who put him on the wrong fucking boat with the wrong fucking postage on it. And again, it speaks to this, you know, we we have the Francis Ford Coppola version, contemporary memory of like Gary Oldman in a fucking coffin coming for Winona Ryder. For months and months. And and then it's just, you know, poor uh, Teiko Watiti going on this like long fucking roundabout way and winds up in New Zealand and misses the love of his life. Ruins his afterlife. Ruins it, but does it? No, it doesn't. No, because it's so sweet. they get together in the end. I love that. Oh, it's incredibly sweet. But I think it kind of brings us into a conversation about the setting of this film, which is 
pretty revolutionary. Um, and a, a term I saw thrown around about this film of the New Zealand Gothic. Okay. Which uh, I thought was pretty cool. Amazing. Um, and again, so a lot of people, I would say, maybe had an entry point to this film through Jemaine Clement plays Vlad and is one of the co-directors mm-hmm. and who's incredible in this film. And mm-hmm. I certainly knew him through Flight of the Concords. Same. And uh, this is a totally different part for him and he nails it. But you have in Flight of the Concords these two New Zealanders in New York figuring out life and music and the industry and everything that goes along with it. And then you have What We Do in the Shadows, which is a film that is deeply set in Wellington, New Zealand, which I, oh gosh, I'm so sorry for any New Zealanders out there, I believe is the largest city in New Zealand. I don't know shit. You're not from New Zealand? I don't know anything about anywhere. I don't even know anything about Toronto. (laughs) Anyway, it's one of the major cities in New Zealand. And it's, it's this actually very small city. It's, it's this little place and it speaks to the colonial aspect of New Zealand. Obviously, Australia was colonized by the British. They brought over prisoners and all kinds of stuff. But New Zealand has a history of about 700 years. It was initially populated by the Polynesians who grew their Maori culture there. And then the British kind of subsumed that and brought over more British people and this, that, and the other. And it wasn't until, like, really the 1950s and before that, the Maori culture had gotten pushed out of the major areas. Mm -hmm. And then there was an uprising. And now they're, again, it's not dissimilar to Canada. They are trying to find a peace and a reconciliation with their indigenous culture. Okay. And um, it, it's especially interesting because uh, Watiti, again, the other co-director, he is uh, Maori and he's playing a very like upper class uh, interview with the vampire Anne Rice as character mm-hmm. who has in turn colonized his country. So I thought, and again, this film does not draw attention to that, but if you like the players, if you know about them, you get a sense that there is a very slight maybe commentary on the colonization of this country and the fact that it's like, okay, we're going to go out, and then it cuts to them on a bus, and then they're going to all these kind of disparate clubs. Um, so funny. And they talk, I was reading interviews with them when they were promoting the film, and they talk about the kind of weird nature of Wellington, how it's actually a very small town, even though they all live there, and it feels tiny, and um, how it was very seemingly easy to get a hold of Peter Jackson. And once they told him what they were up to, he lent them a bunch of stuff. And like the exteriors of their house or his old um, studio house. And okay. um, so there's a lot of overlay there. And then how a lot of the bars they shot in for what we do in the shadows actually shuttered by the time it was released. No kidding. And this film started as a short film. It started as like a little thing that they had a joke about. And then over, you know, several years eventually got to be a feature. Right. I can see that, though. I can see that in the quality. I can see that in the quality of the humor. Is it just... Nothing is a throwaway. Mm -hmm. Everything is so, so deliberate. And, you know, earlier today, I would have said that my one criticism of this film is that it kind of ignores vampire culture as it exists today, which is to say people who throw on fangs and corsets and hats and go out and party that way. Yeah, like, they've got their little masquerade and whatever, Mm. but there is very much a culture that worships vampires and that worships that lore as a subculture. But 
perhaps not where it's situated, and this film is so committed to being situated where it is and being true to where it is that perhaps this is territory that the miniseries will cover or something like that. But, but it doesn't feel like an oversight anymore because of the point you just made. Thank you, and I like that、um, you know they play with the notion of the familiar not only through Viago's interaction over, I believe, Skype,、mm-hmm. uh, but also with Deacons. <laughs> This poor Deacon's familiar is、housewife. so tragic. Then she has this redemptive arc at the end. Oh, where she makes her husband、yeah. more familiar. Yeah, and she abandons her family. I, I found her pretty tragic, to be honest. And I was also kind of like, man, you know, Stu is the one that got to bring them technology and party with them and all that while she cleaned their fucking gutters. And I, I don't know. I can't. I can't help but see a little bit of a、uh, little bit of sexism in that. They'd rather put Stu in the role of he's our friend and he teaches us stuff, but the girl does all the work. It's fair, but she has to boss her husband around at the end. Then、like、she bosses her women, husband around, right? and she gets her internal life that she wanted. She was a mother. Furthermore, it was just kind of like fuck、Whatever. you, family, peace. Maybe she'll get more of a presence in the miniseries too. And also, I like the relationship that they have with the werewolves. Me too. When they pass each other in that initial sequence, and they're yelling shit at each other, like, like a couple of frats. Yeah. We were just about to walk past a werewolf, so some shit might go down. Look out, guys! Don't catch fleas. What's that, mate? Deacon. Sorry, what? Keep going. Keep walking. Keep what we heard, though, mate, we got sensitive hearing. Have you? Yeah. It was so perfect.、Mm-hmm. And then again, the kind of climactic scene after the unholy masquerade, where they go, and it's all like it's this bloodbath, and Stu gets turned, and he kind of becomes one of them. It's pretty nice. And then you've got the vampires inviting them over, and、mm. they make a comment about the smell, and it's all it's all quite lovely. <laughs> it's all pretty hilarious. So all this to say is that I mean we get pretty deep in horror, we get pretty intense with horror, but horror has a really fun side, and you can you can have fun getting intense with horror's fun side, and I think that's what we were aiming to do with this episode.、Uh, we picked two movies that take fairly different tacks, poking fun at horror, but. But as you can see, there's still quite a bit of analysis and ideology that can be pulled out of that. Yeah, I think as much as we love horror as a genre, and I'm speaking for Andrea, myself, and yourself, if you're listening to this, we, generally we love film.、Mm-hmm. We love the stories that we tell ourselves, and I find it very exciting when genres blend. Um, whether it's action horror,、uh, romance horror, comedy horror, whatever it is, and in the rare occasion where it's successfully pulled off,、mm-hmm. or even mostly successfully pulled off, as I think is the case with these films, it's one of those things that it keeps the genre alive for me.、Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I don't know everything.、Mm-hmm. There's something more to say about it. There is more to say, and there are more voices who are invested in this. And I think. Both of、uh, these films, Young Frankenstein and What We Do in the Shadows, show that people who are maybe quote unquote outside the horror genre have quite a bit to say about the horror genre.、Yeah. And I think you can look, you know, to other people like you've already mentioned, Andrea, like Jordan Peele, fingers crossed, Danny McBride, depending <laughs> on this Halloween sequel. But you know, Jordan Peele again, a great example of someone who is so well known for his comedy and is、mm-hmm. still so incredibly funny, and then came out with I, I think the best horror film of the new millennium. Absolutely, and still a very funny one. 
Like he, he still manages to mix those beats. Like um, going back to the typology you mentioned it earlier, it's a horror comedy. Mm-hmm. It's not a comedy horror like these ones that we're talking about, but there are laughs to be had. There are. And I will always try to check out anything that's blended, anything that's new. This is why we have to stay open and honest and on top of these things because the genre will change. The Thank genre God. will always change, and that's what's amazing about yes. it. So it's hard to believe we're at the end of July, but that means that it's uh, it's time for our sabbatical. Um, historically, we've always taken August off to enjoy the summer, is what we said. But I don't know about you, but I've got a fuck ton to do. I'd be working all goddamn summer. I was literally about to ask you what you were going to do this August, and then I figured it was at least the same as me, which is preparing for Salem Horror Fest. Preparing for Salem Horror Fest, which is work and not work at the same exactly. time. We are so excited. We've got our flights booked as of, like, just yesterday, so it's just starting to really feel real to us. Um, this time, a week from now, I will have the Halloween double issue of Rue Morgue out of my face, <laughs> and that's really exciting. Oh, shit, are you ready? Uh, no, a week from now. <laughs> a week from now, I will live again. In the meantime, I'm trying to think of what we have for announcements. Well, let's see. What do we have? So Salem Horror Fest, obviously, that will be linked in the show notes October... 12th. Come see us. Come see us. We're going to be in Massachusetts. Yeah. And don't underestimate how much we get to hang out with people who come see us. This this festival is very intimate and yeah. we're going to chill. It's fun. Yeah. Uh, so we're doing our live show on Ty West's The House of the Devil uh, late on October 12th. And then I will be doing a lecture on uh, female killers in 90s cinema on the 13th. Andrea, you are on... Sunday the 14th. With a lecture on cinematic depictions of hell. So that's my August. I'm diving into hell. So if you want to come hang out with us in October in Salem, what better time to go to Salem? It's incredible there. Yeah, it's the best time. And we're keeping our t-shirt sales open until September. So if you've been snoozing on that, if you've been waiting, don't wait any longer. We said those were limited edition and uh, we meant it. Yeah, and we've extended it and we're seeing so many great things from extending it. More people are getting it, which is what we want, but we do want to keep it limited edition. So get your t-shirts, get them now. They're super cool. They were designed by Stacey Ponder. Doesn't get much cooler than that. You don't get much more horror cred. Like if you're (laughs) like, oh, I don't know how to go to this horror thing and seem cool, just buy a t-shirt. Like if the horror community were a reality TV show, Stacey Ponder would be like the Paris Hilton Oh my god, she totally would be. <laughs> I don't think she'd be flattered by that, <laughs> no, she so wouldn't. we'll keep that right here. Mm. There will not be an episode in August. As per usual, we will still be active on our social media, sharing articles, uh, all kinds of fun things. So if you don't already, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter. I know the Reddit Faculty of Horror page is revving up. Yes. Which is I'm amazing. I'm so glad you brought that up because the moderators of our subreddit have been working hard at making weekly chats. Um, I think it was just today I was talking to the moderator and he was saying that we should do an AMA which I, I think is a really yeah. fun idea. We did one on Instagram Live, which was okay, but Reddit is fun because we can do it from home, from our pajamas, as we love. And so, so yeah, if, you're, uh, if you'd like to get in on the discussion there, you can always do so on social media, on our website. Rating us on iTunes helps the show a lot, and they pick me up on my worst days. <laughs> they truly do. If there's a day when there's not a new Real Housewives episode, 
Sometimes I just scroll through those iTunes reviews. And I swear to God, even like even our lowest reviews, all of our low, low reviews have some like <laughs> chauvinist comment about how it was great until they started talking about feminism. Like, guys, that warms the cockles of my motherfucking heart. There's no better compliment you could pay me than to give me a two star review and say it's because I'm a feminist. I'm like, yes, yes, feed me, see. <laughs> but in the meantime, in prep for August, because it's back to school. Yep. Because I've been having 1990s fever. Yep. We're going to talk about Robert Rodriguez's The Faculty. It's our... No. It's not our namesake. It is not our namesake, but for a while it was hard to find us without finding stuff about The Faculty, the 1998 film. That's right. And there's a lot going on in that bonkers little film. The Faculty was one of those films that when I started working on my book and I was telling people about it and when it was coming out, a lot of people, like random disparate people in my life were like, holy shit, are you talking about The Faculty? And I was like, uh, duh. Yeah, I am. And um, so I am excited to talk about it. I'm excited to revisit it. I am presenting a screening of it at TIFF at the end of July. Uh, so I don't think any of you will be able to make it. Maybe you do. I'm coming. You're coming. But Andrea and I will get to have the experience of watching it in a cinema, hopefully with some kind of audience. Maybe just my boyfriend and my parents. Who knows? That's fine. Um, but so, yes, homework over August. Watch The Faculty. Watch The Faculty. Have some fun. Enjoy the rest of your summer. And we'll be back in September. But until then. Office hours are closed. <laughs>